right, hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and come on inside. Take your seats. Oh, yeah. Come on in. We got a few. What's that? You had more coffee. Yes, that's true. You got a little, maybe you got a little extra sleep. I don't know. Uh, my name is Amy. If we haven't met, I'm part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church. If you are, if you are not new, if you've been here a while and, or you've been here for a short time, then you know that we've rearranged some of the furniture, right? Okay. You are part of our experiment. We're filming you right now. We're really not, but we are, actually. And, and so the experiment, which I will not give you the details because then it would, you know, change the whole thing and we'd have to restart the entire thing. However, it's going to be active for several weeks. So get comfortable in your new seat, you know, figure out your process as you enter the room. Uh, only seats here. Over here, right here, all right? Um, but this is how it's gonna look, all right? So I don't wanna hear anything about it. <laughs> all right, if you are not new, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Our information about our church is in that pocket in front of you. You can also connect with us in the foyer after the service, and we can give you a little gift and just let you know uh, the weekly happenings that are going on um, at, at, at SBC. I do wanna let you know about a class that is actually occurring right now um, it's our new believers class. It started today. It's during this service in Ray Hall. And so for some reason you forgot it started today and you were meaning to be there. I will not point at you if you have to get up and walk over there right now. It's okay if you need to do that. That class is happening for the next three weeks because that class is taking up space next door. Unfortunately, we can't have our junior high gatherings that we normally have on Sundays. And so for the next three weeks, junior high folks will be in here um, and then we'll continue those gatherings after the three weeks have ended. All right. And so the New Believers class is happening now. Our Holy Spirit class is happening in a couple of weeks on the first Thursday of February. Uh, Pastor Wayne is going to be teaching that. And it runs all five Thursdays in February. All right. Thursday night, 6 p.m. We do want you to register, but also especially if you're coming and you need childcare, we want to know that too. Um, if you come and you didn't tell us you were bringing your kids, I can't make any promises. So you just need to let us know what's happening and we will be gladly, gladly take care of that for you. All right, and so that's our Holy Spirit class. Um, also in a couple of weeks, we have our first ladies night of the year. I think, was there one in January? Yes. Yes, there is our, yes, it is our first ladies night in February. Um, that's February 5th. All right, so we are trying to have a ladies' night as much as possible in this year, every first Monday of the month. All right, so 6 p.m. Monday night, February 5th, also next door in our multi-purpose building over there. Oh, yes, there's one more thing. Now, this is a, a housekeeping thing. If you have been giving online, then you are going to receive your statements through email after January 31st. All right? If you've been giving by check or cash, then you can receive those statements next, starting next Sunday. You'll get a little paper printout that will be out by our info booth. If you've been giving in both ways, then you're going to get both items. All right? We're going to hold on to those in the front for as long as we can. If they're not picked up, we're going to assume you don't need them. I won't ask why. 
we just will assume that you don't need them and they will be shredded. All right, and so those are the, the, the statements. I might mention them again in case you forget. Um, if you have any questions about your statements, you want to contact Marley. All right, not me, Marley. I don't know anything about your money. All right, so make sure you uh, contact Marley if you have any questions about those statements or for some reason you just didn't receive them or didn't see them. All right, so now something a little more fun than that. Um, Pastor Caleb, I'm so far away. Come on, come on. We gotta get going. Has something to share with you. Uh, good morning, church. I'm Pastor Caleb. I'm in charge of the youth ministry. This is Jake and Jesse. They are both interning here at the church on Tuesdays with me. And I forced them to come up here just so you could see them and, and they could, you know, be a part of things. You guys can go have a seat. <laughs> and they, they were really a good sport. That was a lot. That was a lot. Um, but we're going to Thailand with some high schoolers, one junior higher. Uh, there's seven students going and uh, quite a few parents, actually, which is fantastic. Um, in June, June 23rd through July 4th, we're going to Thailand on a mission trip. Why Thailand? Um, I have a good friend. His name's Josh Shively, and he's a youth pastor in Monterey. He took his youth group there last year, and it was life-changing and just a wonderful and fantastic trip for his group, for his family. He's actually moving there as a full-time ministry, uh, full-time missionary right now. He's uh, leaving youth pastoring, and he's going there full-time with his family. That's how much um, he really believed in what they were doing there and just how successful it was. The group that we're working with is called Within Reach Global. And every day, they, they spend time in the morning training the team and prepping them for the activities of that day, which is fantastic. It's not just like, okay, we're here at a Buddhist temple. Go for it. Go, go tell them about Jesus. You should choose Jesus. He's great. <laughs> um, there's, there's this discipleship and training happening every day for uh, the different places that we're going. And so it's specific and I'm really excited about this. Uh, it's going to cost around $3,500 per person. Most of that is airfare. And um, so my ask this morning is I've got uh, information for each student that it's going. And if you would like to help them get to Thailand by having them babysit for you or shovel snow or stack wood or et cetera, please come and find me. I'll be hanging out around the info booth after service. I've got their contact info, and if you could reach out to them directly and schedule that, that would be amazing. Please be praying for us. We're going to, and be on the lookout. We're going to have, like, uh, prayer cards, like, kind of like little posters with their pictures on it, so you can, you know, know who you're praying for for this trip. Uh, my heart for our high schoolers mainly is that, you know, they don't need to hear more. They need to go and do. And they need to go and see. And so I'm really excited about this. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Hey, turn to, well, get your Bible out, first of all. Get your Bible out. If you don't have a Bible, uh, Amy will make sure that she gets the Bibles. Uh, just raise your hand, keep your hand up, and we'll make sure that we have some for you. Uh, and whether it's your device or your Bible or you're using one of ours, Galatians 6 is going to be the passage this morning. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Jesse. For the most part, I, I have the opportunity of preaching most of the Sundays here, but uh, I'm part of just a wonderful team. You guys know that we have some great pastors here, whether it's uh, Brad uh, on worship or right now, Brad, right now, our other Brad, he's next door 
And I think I peeked in there. It looks like there's something like 15 uh, individuals in the class for the new believers class. And it, I don't know how many of you are aware of this. Most of you, I think, are if you're here regularly. But we saw several people come to the Lord. We baptized 40 this summer. Uh, and, and to see people getting saved and then discipled and growing in the faith like they are next door, it's pretty neat to see to see Christians, folks who, who are being reconciled to God and, and, and getting saved in our church, which is really cool. I, I don't know if you know this or not. I, I came across, I was just asked recently to be part of um, our denominations, what's called their church advance team. And their church advance team basically is, it's funny to think that I'm at this place in my ministry where I'm being asked to coach other churches and, and how they grow and how they can become healthy. And I was asked to partake in this, and the reason I was asked to partake in it is because within our district, our denomination as a whole, and this is true, not just for my denomination or our denomination, but for churches across uh, the nation, 80% of churches are in decline in the United States of America. 80%. And so we're in this small category of churches that are growing, that they're healthy, People are getting saved, and, and that's pretty cool. So can we just thank the Lord for being super gracious to us? Very, very kind. <clears throat> I just, it, it excites me to see those kind of things. And of course, uh, I wasn't going to share this with you, but tomorrow I got a guy, another pastor friend uh, I'm with. He has a church of about 3,000 people, and uh, he and I have become really good buddies. And we've been talking about just growth. His church is experiencing the same kind of growth. And he's coming up here tomorrow to visit me because we're, we're going to drive down to Reno together, and we're, we're in early, very early discussions of possibly partnering with him and, and planting in Reno. So uh, God is on the move, man. He's not done saving people regardless of that 80% decline. We're going to be continue to propagate the gospel and fight against that. Amen? Exciting stuff. Okay, so Galatians chapter 6. Uh, if you would, I want to encourage you to turn there, verse 1. I'll give you a little bit of background here in a moment. I want to start with the reading of Scripture, though, so please... Uh, I would encourage you, if you're able to, would you stand with me? I'm only going to read the first two verses, though um, technically, really, I think all the way through verse 5 is important in chapter 6 for us. But really, I'll spend most of our time in these two. So it reads, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh Lord, we just want to ask this morning, as we do every Sunday in faith, do a work in our hearts. Draw us close to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You take your seat. Thank you. So by way of reminder... We're just in a series called Our House. Another way that we could have labeled it might be community or what it means to be the people of God. Really, the, the, the intention in this topical series before we dive into another book of the Bible around Easter time, uh, which is what we do, if, if you know, we, we typically walk through books of the Bible. We'll be in 1 Corinthians uh, sometime around Easter, and so you can prepare for that by reading and, uh, and praying and, and praying for the church. But right now, I, I felt with with the amount of people that we saw come to faith, with the baptisms that we've had, with uh, just even my natural bend, which is to be a little bit more evangelistic in tone, uh, it has been to, to try to shore up the DNA of the church. And what I mean by that, by shoring up the DNA, is that, is that what, what we believe matters, but what you live matters even more. 
And what I mean by that is that you can believe that Jesus Christ is God and never really surrender to his lordship, right? You've all heard the argument that even demons themselves know that Jesus exists, yet they do not worship God. And so knowledge is insufficient. Uh, one of the terms I've used probably for the last couple years because I've enjoyed the way that it, it rolls off the tongue is the words orthopraxy and orthodoxy. Some of you might be familiar with those terms. We've mentioned them before on, on Sundays. I mentioned them to the men's breakfast last time I met with them. And, and really, orthodoxy is, is, ortho means in line. It's where we get our word from orthodontics, right? Straight teeth. So ortho is, is in line. Doxy, doxology, praise to God, like in line praise, in line theology, correct theology. Orthodoxy matters. It really does. I mean, you do, you do need to know that Jesus Christ is God. If you don't know that Jesus Christ is God, then the whole idea of forgiveness of sins is just thrown right out the door. Because we're told in the Old Testament, only God can forgive sins. Jesus then comes on the scene and he forgives sins. And the reasons that he was targeted to be stoned and murdered was because of his proclamations that he was the great I am, that he was God. Orthodoxy matters. But if your orthopraxy, which is just a fancy way of saying the way of what you practice, do you practice your orthodoxy? Do you live out your orthodoxy? You can say that God is compassionate. You can say that he's kind and that he's loving, but you yourself may not be kind and loving, right? You may be a clanging cymbal, a banging gong. That's what 1 Corinthians says. If you have not love, then you're nothing. So our orthodoxy, what we believe, our theology and our doctrines, all of those things matter a lot. Uh, I don't ever want to minimize them, but they mean nothing if, the heart, if your heart hasn't changed. So what has happened in Galatia, if you remember, right, Paul, Paul, like he has many of the letters that we read in the New Testament, Paul has planted this church, and, and because he cares about the churches that he's planted in, he, he's done an incredible job equipping leaders and, and assistants and servants, and, and he's installed them into leadership, and then he's moved on, and he's planted other churches, he's been shipwrecked, and then stoned almost to death, and then thrown into prison, and that's his journey. And so he writes this letter to Galatia because he understands that what has happened in the Galatian church is the Galatian church started out really, really well, but then it started to veer away from its correct orthopraxy, its practice. So now imagine, right, in the early church, what you had had is you had individuals like the Greeks and like the Romans, uh, people in Asia Minor who did not grow up with any really really any idea that there was one true God. This was a foreign concept to the Romans. This is something that they didn't really think about at all because they worshiped many gods. They, they had gods for just about everything. And then all of a sudden, Paul shows up on the scene who happens to be a Hebrew. He's not even a Gentile, though he does have Gentile citizenship. And the people begin to listen to him and they begin to get, get saved, right? Like we've seen people in our church in the last couple of years, people coming to faith. And when people come to faith, what's awesome for, for me, especially when I'm walking with people who are new in their faith, they're really excited about one particular thing and that's the person of Jesus, right? You never take a new Christian and say, would you like to speak of the nuances between predestination, predestination election and free will? Would you like to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism on day one of Christianity? And some of you are like, what is Calvinism and Arminianism? Right? These are things that Christians like to fight about. These are things that Christians like to argue about at times. We could get into eschatology in here too, right? We could divide about that. Let's, let's talk about that day one. 
I came from a church that's all we really talked about, eschatology. Jesus is coming back. And that was really how people came to faith, right? Because, because if Jesus was coming back and the Antichrist was coming, then you needed to become a Christian lest you worship the Antichrist and became enslaved. A lot of people came to faith out of just pure fear in the 80s and 90s, yeah? But now imagine these folks, <clears throat> a pure, unadulterated relationship with Jesus, no different than the woman who sat at the well when Jesus spoke to her and he told her that he knew her sins She went away and she didn't say he taught me all of this great doctrine. No, 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 this person knows who I am. He told me all of my sins. He knows me, intimacy. And Galatians starts out really well. The church started out really well. And then Paul writes this letter because he says, he he says literally in in the letter, he'll say, he'll say, hey, you started out well, who hindered you? Who hindered you? Who tricked you from diverting from the simple simplicity of what the gospel is, that you were saved by grace and you were not saved by the law? Because what was happening is these Judaizers came in and they started saying this, oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, I was part of a church in San Diego. Literally, this happened on Sundays. We, we had to have pastors guard the foyer and guard the altar when people came to faith because we would do altar calls at that time because there were people from the church of Christ who would sit in the audience and wait for those young Christians who would just come to faith. They'd wait for them to walk out the door and they'd grab them. And they'd say, hey, we want to teach you something. And then what they would teach them is they would teach them a gospel that is no gospel at all. And they would try to take them away from, from really the unadulterated gospel of grace. So we sent guys like me up there to Yeah. And what happened in Galatia was, was the same kind of thing. Judaizers came in and they said, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you actually have to embrace all of the Torah and the Jewish law as well. So imagine you're a new young believer in faith. You're 25, you're 30 years old. You come sitting down in church, you're worshiping Jesus because you know that's the man who's told you all of your sins and he loves you anyways. And then someone creeps up next to you and says, oh, you really want to be saved? Circumcision's where it really starts. I didn't sign up for that. (laughs) But this is what was happening. And and we use circumcision as an example, but it was much more than that. The idea of grace, the idea of the true gospel was being trampled on inside of the church of Galatia. So Paul's whole premise of this letter, just so you understand context, is, is that you and I would no longer, that we would have orthodoxy for sure, but that our orthopraxy would matter. Our orthopraxy being a love for God and a love for neighbor. Jesus simplifies all of it and whittles it right down. Do you love God with all your heart? Do you love your neighbor? And it isn't about adhering to the law that makes your relationship right with God, though what we do with our lives matter. It's, it's still about that intimacy. And really what they were trying to say was that you have You have God in your mind, but you don't have God in your actions, and you need to start adhering to the law. Now, what happens with churches that emphasize the law and what happens with Christians like yourselves that emphasize the law is if you adhere to the law of God, if you adhere to the righteousness of God, and you do a good job in that regard, you end up becoming an egotistical jerk. Do you know those Christians? They're better than you. And, and, and they know sometimes they don't even have to say anything. Just standing next to them, you smell and feel dirty, <laughs> right? Because they got their act together, right? We, we have these, see, if you, if, you, if you do well, 
If you're going to adhere to the law perfectly and you think that the law is the way that you obtain salvation or you keep your salvation, you end up being mean. But on the other hand, what happens when you're in a room with people who are really good at adhering to the law and you know that you can't fight temptation and you keep falling into temptation and you can't adhere to the law and you're in a room filled with people who all adhere to the law, you just feel guilty and shameful. You feel like you're a nobody. And the gospel, what it does is it obliterates both. You cannot be prideful because it is the work of Jesus Christ that has brought you to heaven. It is the imputed righteousness of God that he gives you that allows you to be the person that you need to be. And you can't feel guilty and beat up because Jesus has already said, I know, I know that you're a sinner. Right? How hard is it to fight temptation? Right? You, see, you ever hear people go, oh, it's so hard to fight temptation. The only reason it's hard is because you've attempted to do it. And I think it's C.S. Lewis. He has this great line where he says, you don't find out, this was during World War II, because you, you, you don't find out how strong the German army, army is by sitting back and talking about how strong the German army is. He says, you only find out how strong the German army is by actually going and fighting against the German army. The reason I say that is, none of you have ever fought temptation successfully. You know how I know that? Because none of you have ever fought it all the way to its defeat. So Jesus says, you didn't fight against your sin to the point of bleeding. None of us are going to ever fully be overcomers. It's Jesus who's the overcomer in us. And he's not looking for us to be perfect because he's perfect. He's looking for relationship. He's looking for intimacy. And so this is the background of, of the book here. And then, and, and then what Paul does is he continually throughout this letters, I like how Keller calls uh, Galatians. He says, Galatians is a bomb because it'll keep exploding your idea of what it means to be close to God. It's called the Magna Carta of Christianity, the book of Galatians, or, or called the, the, uh, the Declaration of Independence for the Christian. Right? If you're an American citizen, it's really important that you read the Declaration of Independence. But if you're a Christian, it's more important that you read the Declaration of Independence as a Christian, which comes from Galatia. Right? This is your independence. This is your freedom in Christ that you have. And so Paul wants us to know this freedom and he wants us as a church, he wants us to understand what it means to live by grace, to be holy for him. That's kind of what we talked about the last couple of weeks. The imputed holiness matters more than the actual practical holiness. But now he comes to this place in Galatia where he says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, now here's the lack of holiness, that's sin. He talks about brothers falling down and he talks about those of us who are spiritual that we would restore those who have fallen. Has anyone ever been uh, stuck or fallen into sin on accident? Every day is the answer, right? And, and, and so he says this and what I think is really interesting, before he mentions in chapter six, before he uses the word brothers, if you go back, just go back a little bit to verse 16, Context matters, right? What is he saying? What is Paul mentioning? I know that we haven't had the whole context of the letter. We're not walking through Galatians as a whole. But I want you to see in verse 16, look at what he says. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Now what you have, what you have from verses 16 on to 6 is a dissertation that Paul gives us on what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit. You might even have your Bibles. Some of you are like, you know, you have headings. Anyone have headings in their Bibles? 
some of your headings might say like mine does here. Just This is for people who, who, <clears throat> who are a little too lazy to actually read, right? You don't have to actually read the text. You just, uh, what, what is chapter uh, 6, verse 16 through about? Oh, keep in step with the Spirit. You see the heading there? So somebody was like, you're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. You don't need just chapter titles. You need segment titles too, right? So the segment title is keeping step in the Spirit. What does this mean? To be a people of God, to be part of his house, we are to be a people who walk by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh. He, and he tells us what the flesh looks like. He says, it's really simple to see, right? He says, okay, walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So then he tells us what the opposite of walking by the Spirit is. It's against the Spirit. What are those things? The desires of the flesh. Those are against the Spirit, for they're opposed to each other. And then he gives us a whole list of things that aren't from the Spirit. Right? But notice what he says in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why is this important? He's saying if you're led by the Spirit, you understand that your salvation doesn't come from adhering to the law. It doesn't come from your actions. It comes from your faith. So he goes on and he says that these works that are not of the Spirit are very evident. They are works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, uh, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. and th- this, is a, this is a good list. It's a pretty good list. It's not sufficient list. It's not all in there though, right? So there's all these things that we know because why? If you look at these things, all of these things come from self. It's all, it's all rooted on me. So here's what I want you to see from the message this morning. You who are spiritual, you are called to restore your brothers and sisters who have been caught in any kind of transgression. That's what he's trying to get across. He's trying to get across. You need to live a spirit-filled life. Now, that's what I want to ask you this morning, and that's what I'm hoping for you to grasp, is what does it mean to be a spirit-filled person? And this is such a great conversation to have, especially over lunch where we have more time, because what it means to be spirit-filled, a lot of different people have a lot of different ways of of, of defining what it means to be spirit-filled. Some denominations actually teach that if you're spirit-filled, you will speak in tongues. And that speaking in tongues is the evidence of the spirit in your life, right? That, that's, that is a doctrine that is taught, that is in a, a, what they would call orthodoxy in their particular uh, ring or arena. Now, can I just state, I inherently, uh, vehemently disagree because the evidence of the Spirit, according to Paul, notice in this particular segment, he, first of all, he, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? If, for those of you who know where to look in Galatians 5, it's right there in front of you. Love. Now, if you look up the fruit of the Spirit, some people say it's the fruits of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. They're in conjunction. And I don't think it's coincidental that along with Corinthians 13 and Galatians and the places in Ephesians that we were in just not that long ago, where the emphasis is a Spirit-filled person is embalmed in love. And that's what we talked about last week. 
Love with sincerity. Do you remember that? Love with sincerity. Love without wax. Let the brokenness of your lives shine through. Don't be concerned about being polished and looking good. It's okay to be a broken person used by a perfect God because God shines through your fracturedness. Right? What would a community look like that embraced its imperfection knowing that God's in charge of ultimately smoothing out that imperfection? Because I think, I think in the context of a spirit-filled life, Paul tells us exactly what some of that spirit-filled life looks like in verse 16. And the first word of emphasis is right there in verse 1, and it's just the word brothers. A spirit-filled Christian is a Christian who understands that we are a family of God. We're brothers and sisters. Right? We're family. If you were to look in other places in Galatia, uh, in Galatians, I'm sorry, you would see in chapter 4, verse 6, we're called the children of God. And as children of God, we get to call God Abba, which means daddy. This was a big deal. In fact, the Pharisees got frustrated with Jesus because Jesus called God the Father daddy. And they basically were like, that's too informal. You're speaking to God in a way that's way too informal. Right? They were telling Jesus, your orthodoxy's off. You don't call Yahweh daddy. And Jesus just keeps, I don't know, just in my head, I just see him walking around the Pharisees, talking to Jesus out loud, talking to God out loud, right? Just saying daddy over and over again, just to bother the Pharisees. It would bother me if I'm honest, right? I mean, even as a man, there's something weird about, about like, like if my dad were alive today, I would have a hard time walking up and going, daddy. Be like, sup, pops? That's how my 13-year-old speaks to me now. Right? I'm like, go back to daddy, please. And then he called me daddy, and then I was like, pops is fine. <laughs> he says, he says in Galatians, he says, we are the children of God. We can call him Abba Father. Obviously, in chapter 6, verse 1, we are called brothers and sisters. If you go to chapter 6, verse 10, he calls us the household of God. Paul, as he's training young Timothy, tells Timothy in multiple places, when you're doing church... You don't rebuke an older man, but you encourage an older man like he's a father. So he gives us rules. Paul gives us some rules, some guidelines, some orthopraxy on the way in which as Christians we operate in the house of God. If you're a younger man, any younger men in the room, they all sit in this area right over here. Most of them. There's a couple back there too. The younger men, it says, if you're younger in the church to be part of the house of God means that you treat older men like a father. And if you have other younger men in your life, if you're a young man and you got even younger people in your life, you treat those younger men like brothers. And older women, you're to treat them as mothers. How are you guys doing in that category? Do you have a kind of respect for the older men in the church like they're a father in your life, a spiritual father? They have something to offer you. They have something to teach you. Same with the older women in the church. They have something to teach the younger women. But we're to te- treat as, as men also, it says you treat all the other girls in the church as sisters. We're a family, and God desires that a family of God would be a diverse family of God that comes together in its brokenness, and we gather together as a people of God knowing the grace of God, but the mentality that you and I have to have is one of the brethren. You have to see each other in this room as inseparable members of the household of God. 
And one of the things that we try to say every now and then when someone comes to faith is, you know, we, in our books and stuff that we use over there that we're using, it says, welcome to the family of God. I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but you come from a broken family. You come from a place where dad didn't do the best and mom wasn't always there. And, but the church can and should be that. And, and, and we're told specifically by Paul as he talks now about this spirit-filled life. He says the spirit-filled life, if you're gonna walk by the spirit, is gonna be marked by love. And that love is gonna come out in a family type of way. And then he, he mentions now a specific thing that occurs in the church and will occur in your life at some point in time. And this is for everyone. Because he says, if anyone, who's anyone? Anyone? I know it's hard. The Bible's really difficult to understand. If anyone is caught, let's just talk about caught there for a moment. That word caught is literally defined here in the original language as overtaken by surprise. It's that kind of situation where you're not exactly sure how you got to the place that you're in. Ever get, ever be there? Have you ever been there? Where your marriage or your life or your addiction or your attitude, whatever it might be, you're finally just sitting in that alone place. Maybe you're taking a shower. Maybe you're by yourself having a lunch and you just occurs to you, how in the world did I get here? Anyone ever think that way? This is what he's saying. He says, if there's anyone in the church who's in this place where they've been caught by surprise, this, it's the same kind of language from Ephesians chapter six, where it literally says that, 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 that all of us should be aware that we could fall into the wiles, the strategies of the devil. Now, what I like about reading this is a few different things. One thing that I appreciate about this from the view of grace is that he's automatically from the get-go saying, there are going to be people in the church who are going to get caught. Don't let it surprise you. There are people in the church who are going to fall into sin. And it doesn't tell us, beat them up. It doesn't say condemn them. When someone in the church falls into sin, it doesn't say, you know what, kick them out. It doesn't say make them pay a price. Make sure you get your pound of flesh. It doesn't say that. It says, okay, if someone is caught, if first of all, it, the language here is it's evident this person has messed up something in their lives. Something is off. Something is not okay. And it could be sin, but it also, because of the word transgression here, it can also mean it could just be something that's heavy in your life, something that's overwhelming in your life. Have you ever felt like you were drowning in life? What's Paul's commandment to the family of God? If you find someone in the church who's struggling, this is essentially what he's saying. They are overwhelmed. You who are spiritual, restore them. Restore them. Have you taken it upon yourself as part of your identity that not only you are a priest unto God, you are a saint unto God, every single believer, but you're also, you are also an ambassador of reconciliation. You're an ambassador of restoration. Part of what it means for me to be a pastor isn't only to propagate the gospel, to preach the gospel, and to give opportunity for people to receive the gospel, but it also, part of my job is to restore the broken sinner who feels that they are far and distant from God. And to do that with an attitude of gentleness. Now that word restore, just so you know, it, it, it has meaning as well. It means 
to put back in order. It means to repair. It means to put back into line, ortho. It's the same word that would be used for resetting the, a fractured bone. It's also the same word that we, we see in scripture of mending fishnets. You remember when the disciples pull in such a big load that their nets are about to break, right? It's, it's hey, there's a hole in something. There's a hole in your life. And you who are spiritual, you need to be a part of mending that net back in their life to make them the fisher of men that God's created them to be. But you have to do it with gentleness. And you know what's really fun about this for me, reading this idea of restoration? I have a different perspective in it because, I, because of my upbringing, right? You guys all know my dad used to own Hirschdale Auto Wrecking. And so part of, part of his hobby, part of his love was to restore old classic vehicles and motorcycles. Right? And, and I realized something as I grew up with my father that there's all kinds of different ways. Tim knows this, right? Uh, Tim's dad and my dad used to hang out and, and, and have some similar convictions. And, and so this idea of restoration, I, became, I came to realize like there's different ways to restore vehicles. Did you know this? One way is, is to restore it to the original, right? So uh, I had um, uh, my dad's 1969 Fastback Mustang and everything in that Mustang, for the most part, 80, 90% original parts like OG, right? Now, here's the thing. You've ever driven anything that was made uh, before the year 1990. It's basically a death bucket with wheels. You take this Mustang, fly down 80, and, and the whole car just screams, whoa, and basically what it's saying is, death, you're going to die. That's what it feels like. Because you strap on a belt that really is not a belt, dude. Like th- this thing, I don't know what it is. And that's how, how this Mustang was fully restored. But, but then there's something called a resto mod. This is where you take an old classic car and you put all like new guts in it and, and you make it really awesome. But then I got into this thing after, you know, being uh, grown up around my dad and the restoration of cars. I got in for a little while. I would watch it all the time. I would just binge watch it. I don't watch it anymore. But how many of you are familiar with the show American Pickers? So these guys travel the country and they find what they call rusty gold. And if you watch any of these shows like Pawn Stars or, or uh, American Pickers, or if you're familiar with restoring vehicles or restoring anything that has any kind of ancient value to it, you know that part of what makes the restoration of something really valuable, like the resto mods are valuable, they're cool, but they're not nearly as valuable as the one that's original that has some patina to it. Have you heard that? I mean, that's like a, a real popular word like in American Pickers and shows like that. This would be worth $500,000 more if you wouldn't have scraped off the patina. 500 grand for rust? <laughs> Amen, brother. And why am I mentioning this? Because in the restoring of brothers, same as last week when the Bible says love with sincerity, love without wax. Remember the merchants would put wax inside of the, the, the crack of the, the, the vase and, and, and it would look like it was a well put together vase. And, and then there were those who, who didn't. And, and when he says without wax, that's what the language is there. Love with sincerity, love without wax. Don't pretend, let, let the brokenness of who you are shine through. And the same thing that occurs in restoration, God's not looking for you to be perfect and polished. God's actually saying to you that I want to restore you and I want to use people in God's church and God's family to help restore you. But the last thing we want to do is shave off all the rusty parts. Why would God care so much 
to allow those rusty pieces and those broken pieces to still remain upon you because they magnify his grace, my friends. If you could do it perfect, if you could do it and you were fully restored, you'd be in no need of the one who restores your soul daily. You would, you would, be in, you would not have need for God's manna every single day. You would be self-righteous like the Pharisees. I don't need the Lord. I've done it all. And I was thinking about this and I thought, is there a way that I could prove to you in scripture that Jesus wants to keep your patina? (laughs) And my mind and my heart immediately went to the locked room with doubting Thomas. Thomas is in that room and the other disciples are telling him, Thomas, you gotta hear us, bro. Our rabbi's alive. And Thomas says, there's no way unless I put my hands inside of the hands, the holes in his hands and into his side. And you know what? The resurrected Jesus in his resurrected body walks through that room and in his brand new resurrected new body, he has the scar still. Even Jesus carries his patina. Because he's not trying to make you perfect because he already is perfect. He's trying to be in relationship with you. He's trying to show you this is family and it's a family that needs more grace, not more judgment, more love, more embrace, more healing. And he tells us, he says, okay, if, you're, if, if you are spiritual, you'll restore someone in gentleness. Now I, I gotta conclude here in just a few moments, but notice it doesn't say you who are spiritual, you are to be the spiritual police. No, it's gentleness. The heart of the restorer is to be spiritual and the heart of the restorer is to be gentle. That means patient, humble, merciful, compassionate, and kind, and also with understanding that they themselves would fall into the same sin and the same trap if it wasn't but for the grace of God. And that's why he mentions several different times. Look at what he says. If anyone thinks he's something, he's nothing. He deceives himself. The heart of the restorer has to have a heart of, I'm just as broken as you. I have, I have cracks in my hardware and I've got rust on my soul and, and that's the only way I can restore you is because I know that I myself am in desperate need of restoration too. That's why Jesus says in Matthew, learn from me, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. And then he says, as a family of God, he says, you will bear the burden. Do you see it? bear the burden bear one another's burdens and by bearing that burden you fulfill the law of Christ part of restoration is to say okay listen I see something's heavy in your life it's too heavy it's a big backpack you can't carry it alone you know there's things inside of your life that you were not intended to carry alone and the Bible's teaching that the church of God is to be so in love with the grace of God that we want to extend that grace to other people and we want to help carry the load. You know, there's a family in our church right now. I got to kind of be vague with details, but they, they essentially, they've moved out of the area. They were part of our church. Uh, they've had multiple kids and their most recent beautiful baby daughter was born with a, a very severe medical condition. Uh, and, and we've been praying for them and we've been supporting them. And, and a couple families in the church who barely even know who they are wrote that family several checks for several tens of thousands of dollars. 
because someone in the church knew, I know they love Jesus, I know they need help, and there's no way that they can bear this burden alone. And sometimes a $10,000 check, a $20,000 check for somebody like that who's trying to raise seven kids and one of them's gonna need hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical services. And for someone in the church to say, I don't know you, but I know God loves you and I know that you love the Lord and I know I'm supposed to be an extension of his grace. Here's the money, I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but if you need a bigger TV, then here you go. You just trust the Lord. Sometimes that's bearing the burden. But you know what's really interesting is he says this. Look at what he says at the end here. He says, verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Wait a minute. Now, I don't know if you're paying attention, but he just said you have to bear each other's burdens, but now he just said you got to bear your own burden. Well, what's lost in, this, in our English translation, and this is why it's fun to do a little bit of Greek and Hebrew work, is the word burden and load is different. One is for something that's too heavy for you to carry, and one is like a little day pack. That word load there is like a day pack. Everyone has their own daily things that they need to carry, and you, especially as a man in Scripture, it says, don't convolute the two. Right? None of the men in the church should be waking up in the morning uh, at, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes after they're supposed to be at work and then wake their wife up and say, hey, you need to carry my burden. Why didn't you set my alarm for me? No, set your own darn alarm. Carry your own backpack. But there are several other places, whether it's sin or being overcome with financial burden or whether it's some other kind of burden, a marital burden or a kid's kind of struggle or issue, you need the church to help you carry it. You can't do it alone. And if you left here feeling like you could do it alone, you'd be foolish. Because Christianity and the way that you were built is to move away from your own independence towards the dependence that we're supposed to have on God himself. And so as we get ready to leave this morning and sing to the Lord, be encouraged that God has brought you to himself, not that you adhere to the law to be perfect, but that you would see that he is perfect and that you would see that Jesus has carried your load for you, all of your guilt and all your shame on the cross. And now you get to be an extension of that gross, uh, of that gift and that grace that where others are broken and heavy, you can take your own brokenness and you could still be part of their restoration. God doesn't need perfect people to make perfect people. He's the perfect God who shapes us and molds us as he sees fit. And it isn't until heaven that we're all perfect, yeah? In the meantime, we embrace the mess because that's what family is, isn't it? Family's messy, dude. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.